games and interactive media are changing in some pretty big ways. From players to creators, passive entertainment to interactive, these changes are integrating into our lives in ways we've never seen before. We've got the perfect guest today to talk about these changes. It's Wright Bagwell, CEO of Outpost Games. How's it going, Wright? It's going great. Thanks for having me here. I'm Vanessa Zucker, Marketing Manager at Spark and your host of Spark Talks. Make sure to tweet us at SparkPR with your questions and opinions about the gaming industry. Before we get into this topic that I'm sure you're super passionate about, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your history and a little bit about what Outpost Games does? Sure. I'll actually rewind back to how I got into the games industry first. Way back in the late 90s when Quake came out, uh, I was a graduate student and I was having fun doing what I was doing in graduate school. But when Quake came out and I saw the, the modding community and I saw all the, the really amazing things that the, the community of players and creators, um, what they were doing, that inspired me in a way that nothing really ever had in my life. And I, I actually chose to drop out of graduate school to try to go pursue a career in games. Uh, I was building Quake levels and Quake mods and things like that. And I actually managed to get a job after a few months of searching. And I, I think that that community and in that kind of, um, that, uh, that hacker-like approach to making and thinking about games is I think what's really driven me throughout my career. So I went and spent a little bit of time in a company called Cave Dog early in my career. Uh, I spent a year at Valve doing some pre-production on Half-Life 2. I went over to EA, where I was a game designer and level designer on uh, many of the Bond games that were created uh, by EA. I uh, was the creative director for the Dead Space series for a period of time during Dead Space 2. And I spent a few years at Zynga, where I was the design director for the Farmville franchise and led the design of Farmville 2. And after that, I decided that I wanted to go do my own thing. So I started Outpost Games uh, just a little bit over three years ago. And we started Outpost Games to really start thinking about what not just the future of games looked like, but what the future of entertainment might, might look like. When we started thinking about the, the, the trend towards people streaming and playing esports and all of those kinds of things, we started thinking about how could we build a platform that was specifically thinking about how do we reimagine the theater or the stadium for the digital space and what technologies would we have to go build to do that and what business models could come out of that. That's where we started, and we are still working on that today. That sounds extremely pertinent to what's going on right now in the world with reality TV, eSports, all kinds of things like that. So I'm really excited to get into this with you right now. We're going to basically talk about three topics. One, the shifting role of player to creator. A shift in business model from purchasing to investing and how Outpost Games is building the new stadium slash stage. Would you like to start with the historical evolution of games? Yeah, that's a topic that I'm really, really passionate about. So yes, let's start there. All right, so what is the historical evolution of games? I know that you told me before recording that we're going from performance to consumable video games 
to performance-based video games. Care to elaborate? Yeah, if you look throughout history, games have always played an extremely important role in society and in our lives. We, we play games as children to develop ourselves mentally and physically and socially. And as we grow up, that continues. We maintain our physical health and our mental health and our social lives through play with other people. And we think about even in our latest years, the stereotype of uh, you know our, uh, ourselves spending time in retirement homes playing poker or bridge or things like that. So I always like to tell people that I think everyone is a gamer, and I think we're gamers from the cradle to the grave. And and that's been true throughout history. You can see records uh, that that archaeologists have found. Um, that you know, people have been playing games uh, around the world for as long as we can find historical records. And something really, really funny happened when video games came along a few decades ago. When video games went into the arcade, uh, arcades were a, a kind of a public forum for people to go and be social and be competitive. And in some ways, I, I think that uh, arcades were a little bit like a stadium. Um, you know, if you were really good at playing a video game, you might actually get a crowd of people surrounding you. Yes. And, <laughs> and you could earn some fame by having your initials up on a leaderboard. And when video games came into our homes, we couldn't monetize people's uh, playing of the games over and over and over again. So quickly what happened is the video game industry looked at how they could keep selling more and more video games. And I think that led people to the conclusion that if video games become consumable, then it's good for the business because we can keep selling more and more and more. So the idea that you could beat or finish a game is something that really, that, that idea never existed until video games came along. So if you think about it, saying, you know, no one in history has ever said, you know, I, I finished the Olympics. I, you know, I, I beat chess. Um, I'm done with it. I beat the final boss. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous idea. And we've come to accept it when video games came along. So if we think about Super Mario Brothers 1, 2, 3, or any other big franchise, they're all, um, although many of them are highly replayable, they're still all really designed to, to at some point make you want to put them down and go play something else. And so because of that, it has made us think about video game players as uh, people who consume content. Mm -hmm. And that's been the case for several decades. And now we're just really, really starting to see a more widespread acceptance of the idea that people who play video games are performers and they're content creators. Um, of course, there have been games that have existed for a very long time that have been like that, you know, massively multiplayer online games, MUDs, and things like that. But it's only now that the idea that, that video gamers have these, these talents that are, uh, that are worth you know, putting on a show around and, and thinking of them as content creators, that's really only starting to become accepted uh, today, with the with the with the emergence of uh, esports, yeah, esports is a huge thing that is developing right now. I've been watching all of the press conferences for E3. Everybody's talking about esports. 
Um, Activision Blizzard just came out with their esports league. They're trying to be the next ESPN. So that's a huge deal. Now, in terms of the shifting role from player to creator, what are some examples that we have of that? We have modders, we have live stream players. What else? Those are the, the two big ones. Um, the biggest, I think, are the people who are streamers or people who create video. Uh, in, in many respects, those people are becoming the, the face of, of popular video games. So in the same way that throughout history, Michael Jordan, Pele, Tiger Woods, or um, you know, others have become the face of the game that they play, I think that that's starting to become true of video games. So we see in the streaming world a lot of content creation. Uh, on, uh, on, the, on the modding side, I think ever since uh, Doom and Quake came along, I think those were the, the games that, that really, really caught the public's attention and about how powerful a modding community can be. I've always been impressed with them. I've been impressed with the communities that Valve has created around Half-Life uh, and things like that. And now I think you're seeing that modders continue to be a driving force for innovation in the games business. If you think about over the last 20 years where a lot of the most innovative games have come from and the ones that are changing the industry, um, things like Counter-Strike, things like League of Legends, um, things like Minecraft, and uh, you know, even looking at things that are a little bit more obscure like Gary's Mod, which you know, isn't the most popular game out there but remains at the top of the charts on Steam and Twitch. Uh, all of these have either come from modding communities or have been sustained by modding communities over the years. And I think that we have to really, really continue to embrace the idea that, that modders are going to be the place where we're seeing the most innovation in the games industry. And I think that game developers are, are, well, uh, are going to be well served by allowing people to mod their games. I totally agree. For example, Bethesda just came out with something they're calling the Creation Club, and it's a way to buy mods from community members who work directly with the company itself. And EA had something along these lines, EA Originals, where they work with small studios. The game that they showed at E3 2017 called A Way Out was, in my opinion, the most innovative game that they showed at their conference. So I am 100% with you on that one. Now, what do you mean when you say that people are shifting from purchasing to investing in games? Well, I think you especially see this in the esports world where people are looking at games as, in some cases, a, a way to, to build a career. Or for other people, games are becoming a lifelong pursuit in the same way that other classic games like chess or basketball have been. When you think about people spending or investing time and money into games, uh, I think if, if you step back and look at the trends over the past decade or so with free-to-play, you've seen a lot of people start to talk about monetization and how uh, the, the industry has shifted towards uh, thinking about how we innovate on business models and a lot of design time is spent thinking about how games are built from the ground up to get people to spend time and money in them. Mm -hmm. 
But I think that with, with the emergence of things like esports and the emergence of games that are, are more like performances that can draw large audiences, I think what you're starting to see is the idea that people are thinking about investing their time and money into games. You're investing time to get better at it so that you can become a better performer. And oftentimes you're investing money to do the same thing. So in the same way that in the real world, when we buy a pair of shoes or we buy a jersey or something like that, we're investing money to, to try to up our game a little bit. Um, the, these things not only make us better players, but in some cases are an investment in the community around games to, to strengthen the community, to show support of players or teams that we love. So I think that the industry would be really well served at this point to stop thinking about how you treat players as just consumers and people who just spend time and money in your game. Because if you think of your players simply as consumers, then ultimately business people will want gamers to overconsume. And I think this creates this stereotype of, of gamers as people who, you know, sit on their couches and just voraciously consume content and buy more games. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but I think it perpetuates this idea that that's all gamers do. And, and I think it perpetuates this idea that gaming isn't a very important thing, right? If you just view it as consumption, it's like anything else you consume, you know, like food. Food is very important. But if we overconsume it, there's some negative associations we have with that. And I think the same thing goes for video games. So if we can change the way that we think about designing video games and the business models around them to one where it feels like you're investing so that you're building skill, you're building a social network, you're expanding your mind, and you're creating fascinating performances, then I think that everyone will start to think differently about video games and see video games as this you know, highly respected uh, profession for the people who make it and for the people who are playing these games. Okay, I'm gonna tell you a very embarrassing story just to support this argument. When I was in high school, all of the nerdy kids would go to the arcade and play Dance Dance Revolution. And that is the epitome of a performance. It was mostly an in-person performance because it was before cell phones had uh, cameras, but it could be an online performance. It could be broadcast to a million viewers if we were Twitch influencers. And um, some of the players, they just wanted to do really well. Other players, like myself, wanted to make it a more respected type of like dancing, but also playing the game. So we were called trick performers. So we would do all these cool stunts and everything, trying to make it more mainstream. And I think we would be the perfect target audience for those types of companies. I really, really love that story because I think it, it proves a, a point that, that we've been saying in Outpost Games, which is that when you have an audience, suddenly games become not so much about winning, but it becomes about winning in style or showing off your personality mm -hmm. as you win. And that's been something that 
I, I feel really strongly about because I, I always define the difference between a game and a performance is, is um, the difference is whether or not there's an audience present. Mm -hmm. So when there is an audience present, people behave very, very differently. As you said, if you were playing Dance Dance Revolution in your house all alone, then there's no real incentive to, to show off your personality right. and do trick moves. You're probably only going to care about whether or not you beat the challenge or uh, got a, a higher score. Um, and so, again, I think throughout history we've seen that in the presence of an audience, uh, suddenly people feel motivated to put on a show. Um, going all the way back to the, uh, the, the Roman Colosseums and you know, gladiators, there was this idea that it wasn't enough just to win. You had to win the favor of the audience because they would ultimately decide your, your, your fate in some ways. Um, so I think that that's the, the big shift that streaming and, uh, and recorded videos of games have created. Is it's, it's not just about winning anymore. It's about putting on a show while you're trying to win. So is this what you're referring to when you talk about the new stadium, the new stage, or is there something more to that? Well, it's a big part of it. Uh, as, as we start to see sports, uh, eSports, and as we start to see things that, in my opinion, resemble reality television, so things like GTA RP, for example, or Arma Life, um, I think those, those are completely fascinating. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot more types of entertainment emerge in, uh, in the virtual world. So you have these um, games or simulations where people are putting on performances. And I think that what, what you have to ask is, if we're having these performances, if there are people putting on shows or there are performances or competitions in front of audiences, who is creating the theater or who is creating the stadium? What is the experience of going into a video game and feeling like there's an audience built directly into the game? Um, and, and what would it be like if you could go into a game knowing that every game you play is a performance, that you're going to be watched, that there's an audience built in, and that that audience is going to have some effect on how the game plays out? That's fascinating. I could see um, this being like the next Vine where teenagers go on and perform for their friends at school while playing these games. Especially now the games are very mainstream. They're not considered that nerdy anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope, that, I hope that this becomes something much bigger than Vine. I hope that it's, it feels like uh, a television broadcast network. That um, if you think about uh, a television or, or a film studio, you know, they would have an actual stage. They would have props. They would have a costume department. They would have people who are doing lighting, people who are controlling the camera. There's all of this infrastructure that you need to, to put on a good show in front of an audience. Um, you can also think about things like sports stadiums or, uh, or theaters. Where, um, where music is performed or, or theater is performed. Uh, and if you think about the, the experience that you have as a player or a performer, and if you think about the experience that you have as someone sitting in the audience, uh, you start to realize that 
what's out there right now doesn't really deliver on that very well. At Outpost Games, we're thinking about how to deliver an experience that feels like a digital reimagination of what those experiences are like. Thanks for your insight on this fascinating industry, right? And also, thank you for comparing my nerdy high school self to a gladiator. Feel really good about that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Before we go, how can people get a hold of you? The best way to reach me is just to reach out to me on Twitter. I am Wright Bagwell. It's nice and easy. Awesome. And make sure to tweet Spark PR about your thoughts on the gaming industry, and we'll get back to you. Check out our other gaming episodes, like our E3 recap and our interview with two developers on their thoughts. We'll link in the description. Thanks for being here, right? And we'll see everyone on the next episode. Block out and see the bottom line. Rise. Rise.